0: Coming up this hour, we're going to hear from some thought leaders regarding race and racism, and we'll be joined by Curtis Salter of Judson University. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey everyone, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the place. You don't have to social distance when you're digital. That is, first of all, Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, where we post all of our articles, even some bonus articles. You can send us messages there if you want. Plus we're at 1160hope.com slash the common good, Instagram and Twitter at common good talk. And wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribing, rating and reviewing, all of that does really help change the algorithm and helps more people see the show. we're super grateful for those of you who already have done that. Thank you so much. Before we get into this article from relevant. Ryan, I don't know if you did. You see any of the uh, George Floyd funeral service today? I did not. Did you catch some of it? W- I've been out and about all day. Did you see some? Yeah, man, it's it's actually pretty remarkable because you have all of these major networks, and they were like singing and preaching the gospel, man. Like it really, yeah, like wow. right and left media. I was kind of flipping through them all. I'm like, okay, all right, we're we're doing like it. Just we're doing this. It's obviously. Still a funeral. It's a memorial. You know, it's it's somber, but also in some ways, it did feel celebratory. Uh, and I don't know. It was. It just felt like the gospel was preached and sang, and there was just something about it that that's I found. Awesome. I found really, um, really remarkable, actually. So there's that's this, powerful. This article yeah. out, of, out of relevant. And the headline is something that you and I have actually talked a lot about. And we've heard a number of leaders uh, say in some way, shape, or form. And the headline is the problem with its not a skin issue it's a sin issue we may not be able to legislate racism away but new legislation can help mitigate the damage caused by racism before Mm -hmm. we play a bit of audio from the author i'm wondering just kind of what you thought of this article in general
1: i thought it was fabulous because i love the differentiation between racism and injustice uh that yes uh racism uh is a, uh, is a sin issue that, that is hard to legislate away, but you can legislate what people do, how they, how they act towards others based on their sin issue there. Right. And I found that really powerful in something, because this has been something you see people talking about mm-hmm. and tweeting about that I think is problematic.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting too, because like, I wonder what the motivation behind that is like the, wow, well, let's just, let's just pray about it. You know, I don't, I mean, laws can't change the human heart, which I totally agree, but you know, Christians both right and left have certainly made efforts to change laws or appoint Supreme court justices for other issues. Right. right? So, right. Right. you know, it's curious that this one's different. So I want to listen to just a few minutes from Dr. Darius Daniels and sort of his perspective on this skin issue, sin issue. Take a listen.
2: What's up guys. I know this is blackout Tuesday and I'm going to, black my page out or I'm going to have it blacked out. I, I get challenged sometimes when it comes to technology, but anyway, I'm going to have mine blacked out in just a minute, but I feel like I wanted to say something really quick that I think needs to be clarified. So, um, I've gotten a, some feedback when it comes to some of the things I've said about injustice and racism, and they aren't the same, uh, that, It's a a sin issue, not a skin issue. We can't fix this with reform. We can't fix this with legislation. Legislation. Jesus has to do this, etc. I think one of the points that I think is important to make is uh, the difference between racism and injustice. So racism cannot be fixed with legislation. Right. That is a posture of the human heart. This feeling conscious or unconscious feeling of superiority and partiality uh, of one race over another one. All right. So but that feeling in and of itself does not adversely impact my life until you treat me differently. So if we're both walking in the store and a person uh, has ill feelings toward me because of the color of my skin that doesn't adversely affect my life at all. I really don't care what they think or what they feel. What I care about is how they treat me. So when they're acting on those feelings of superiority or partiality, then the result of that is injustice. So you're right. Laws don't fix or cure the human heart. But what the scriptures teach is that laws and legislation curb or restrain the heart from acting on all of those impulses from time to time. It doesn't prevent it, but it minimizes it, right? It causes it to abase. Um, and what ends up happening is it protects society from the implications and the repercussions of the way that a person feels, So that's what laws do do. So, no, we can't fix this with legislation, but legislation has a role to play in this. That's the equivalent of saying we're not going to put laws in place regarding stealing because stealing is a matter of the human heart. Until a person begins to love like Jesus, they aren't going to steal anymore. Um, So it's well intended, I think, but I just think it's inaccurate and I think it's a bit dangerous. Um, And I'm glad leaders like Dr. Martin Luther King did not think that way. They didn't just say we all need to have church together. They realized, Dr. King says, laws won't make people like me, but laws will keep people from lynching me. So I think it's both. We need um we need human hearts changed, but we need systemic, sinful systems reformed. Let's not conflate racism and injustice. How a person feels about another person doesn't affect them until they act on it. That's when racism becomes injustice. And we do need laws for that. All
0: right. So that's in some ways kind of a summation of the article. I would encourage you go read the article and actually watch the video. I think it's really helpful. But uh, what did you kind of take away from that? It's kind of what we talked about before, just this
1: idea. And I do, I think there's people a lot smarter than me who can get into the, why do people want to say it's a sin issue that we can't legislate away? Because like you said, I've never heard that around the abortion debate. I've never heard that around uh, other societal issues where we go, well, we just have to deal with the sin and the problem will go away. Uh, Something seems unique about this, that people want to do that. But this idea that, no, the point of laws is to legislate against injustice and to practice uh, to protect people uh, from uh, from injustices against them. Uh, I think is so right on and really speaks to the number of people who've been saying, oh, you know, we just have to deal with the sin problem. There's some truth to that. We do have to deal with the sin problem, but that doesn't make it okay to go. And therefore, we can't make any laws to help protect people. That's absolutely not the next step. And I think uh, this clip uh, by Dr. Daniels does a really good job at kind of unpacking that and helping us understand that.
0: So as a as a pastor, how does that uh, kind of come against maybe your theology or your worldview, like if someone from your church was saying, okay, I think I want to go protest. Like how would you coach them or shepherd them? Are you, I mean, is there a a threading of the needle that you'd have to do there?
1: If they want to protest, you said, yeah, uh, I, yeah, it's a great question. Cause I, when people have asked me, I've kind of said, why do you want to protest? And we have all chat about it. And I go, go for it, man. Like if that's what's on your heart, if that's what you feel is right, uh, then go for it. Um, yeah. So I haven't had a problem with that. How about you? Is there is there a disconnect for you there?
0: No, no, not not for <laughs> me. It's just something that I've heard a number of people say that you know, okay. Christians, Christians shouldn't be in the business of protesting or have any involvement in government. And that's a, I mean, that's a conversation that you and I have had in the past. You know, where sometimes we say political, but maybe we mean partisan. Yeah, yeah. But I I mean I've had, and we're gonna get into this in the next segment, by the way, because Matt Chandler. I mean, ignites on fire talking about how (laughs) how sometimes the church like now we're not going to be distracted by this conversation of systemic racism. We're just going to preach the gospel. And he's got a response to that, that I think
3: I I think might
0: surprise some of you. Many of you know Matt Chandler, a a fairly conservative reform preacher in Texas and someone that you and I both respect. So I would definitely encourage you to stick around. For that discussion, because I think it's going to be really, really interesting. But go and read this article, listen to yeah. the audio there on the Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show. I think you really appreciate. It. And coming up and real next, real fast, just about okay. protests. Go real ahead. fast.
1: I'm sorry, sorry to butt in there sure. about protests. If you're a believer who believes that, then stick to your beliefs when the March for Life comes yeah. around next year, right? Like you got to be consistent, uh, and and you're th- you've got to stay consistent through the discussion and not pick and choose which protests you're good with and not good
0: with. All right, coming up next, we're going to hear from Matt Chandler here on the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life, hey everyone. Welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian James. From I, yeah. uh, I'm not in my treehouse, Brian. I just, I, want, I know that you were worried about. I me. was. I just wanted to want to be clear. I was earlier. I zoomed. I had a Zoom call in a tank top, and uh, I rightfully I rightfully was ridiculed for it. <laughs> That's it confidence right there it was too no I don't think it's confidence it was just too hot and I didn't want to be in my freezing basement so I went for it and I regret my decision entirely
4: but <laughs> it is what
0: it is you know what you won't regret going to our Facebook page The Common Good Radio Show you can also go to 1160hope.com slash the common good or wherever it is you get podcasts I'm telling you subscribing rating and reviewing either on the podcast or the Facebook page or both is incredibly helpful, and we're super grateful for all of you who have done that. I mentioned a little bit earlier Matt Chandler. Do you want to give people yeah. a little bit of a summary of who Matt Chandler is? Yeah, Matt Chandler is the pastor of the Village Church down in
1: Texas, uh, I believe just outside of Dallas. Um, he is, <laughs> it's hard to go to many conferences, big conferences, that doesn't have Matt Chandler at him. He is a well known speaker, author, pastor, uh, self. Uh, laying my cards on the table, one of my favorite pastors to listen to if I go listen to sermons while uh, doing work or something, but Matt Chandler. Uh, but also, what's important for this conversation is he's a white pastor, so that is also an important part of this conversation.
0: I was going to say, not a lot of people are going to conferences at all right now. That's so right. That's right. just wanted to get that out there. So so he had uh, a whole message, and this is just a short clip. I, I saw a friend post it on Instagram first, and his his caption was, Kids still got it, or something like that. I was like, oh, I wonder what that's about. So I, I literally didn't even know what the subject matter was. And like most preaching now, it was to an empty room at a camera. Brian, you've done it. It's incredibly difficult yeah. to do, and it is also it's it's much harder to have like energy too because yes. you know there's nobody in the room. And Chandler does not lack energy not at in all in this clip. So I wanted to play you the uh, the three minute clip, and then Brian and I will respond. And here's where I want to lean in a little bit on where we find ourselves.
5: If you'll study the civil rights movement in the 60s, there's a pattern that emerges. So the predominant leader there is Martin Luther King Jr., which we really like right now because he's dead. Uh, I have to believe that a Martin Luther King Jr. right now, he'd be a liberal Marxist socialist that everybody despises, but we'll quote him now because he's not here to offend us in the now. Uh, this is what, uh, uh Jesus means when, when he says that, that you love the prophets that are no longer with us, but you don't like the prophets that are here today, but neither here nor there. In, in the sixties, the, the civil rights movement was born out of the church. And so if you, you study Martin Luther King, like there was this pattern. They, they would meet, they would pray, they would worship, they would go over kind of the rules of the protest and, and then they would march. And, and this was a rhythm that was established by King so that it was rooted in the church that the church let out in a very real way on the civil rights movement in the sixties. And, and now one of the things that has happened is the church by and large has as refused to participate, which means that we have turned over, God help us. We have turned over what is our inheritance to dark ideologies, Like when you say, hey, we're not going to get involved. Let's just preach the gospel to that. Which, by the way, I find so hypocritical. You don't just preach the gospel of sex trafficking. You don't just preach the gospel on the issue of life and abortion. No, you act. And so it's why it's like this brain broke disjoint that's got us acting obscene, I mean, absurd and then critiquing this movement as being evil and dark when we have given up our inheritance. You cannot point out all the flaws in this current movement while you have abandoned the place that we were meant to play. You cannot point out all the, well, this means this, and this believes this, and that's this, and that's this, and and ignore the sorrow and lament of 12 to 13 million image bearers in our country. You can't do that. We mourn with those who mourn. And yes, there are demonic and evil ideologies at play, but that's where the people of God are meant to run with light and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not to sit back and snipe via social media. I got a little hot there. I apologize. We must grow in the hope that God will heal the wounds of racism and that what we're watching on our TV unfold again will one day cease. Look at me. This is our inheritance. This is mine. This is yours. What you're seeing play out right now in, in violent riot and in and, and murder and in what you're seeing play out, that is a robbing of our inheritance. I'm talking to the church. I'm talking to followers of Jesus Christ. It, it's mine. Bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are to grow in a hope that this is possible.
0: All right Brian you you've already kind of admitted that he's one of your favorite preachers so you're yes. biased I understand that but what what did you think Uh totally by an inside
1: by the way not only was he speaking with no crowd there but also uh to be speaking with uh from from a seated position is pretty impressive uh but anyway uh he c- took guts man and like he he just spoke truth and he walked through I thought so powerfully about how the church in many ways has abdicated what it has always done, like kind of led the charge uh, when there's wrong going on in the protest. But instead now he's pointing out that it feels like uh, the greater evangelical church has been sitting on the sidelines and not just sitting on the sidelines, but kind of, um, you know, Facebooking and tweeting about protests kind of ripping them down. And so his point was now others have had to step up and pick up the mantle. I thought this was a, a really convicting emotional charge to the, to the evangelical church of today.
0: Was it convicting uh, for you personally? Uh, yeah, I think
1: so. I think to be reminded that, uh, that as, uh, as pastors, as just Christians, we are called uh, to be in the forefront of uh of taking risks of standing up for the marginalized of having the hard conversations that we are the ones and then all of this stuff about martin luther king too um about how you know we've gotten very comfortable with uh quoting martin luther king but when he was alive uh not a lot of the same people were very comfortable with him and probably wouldn't be today i think is true as well but i it's convicting to go uh that, that it's not just the black church that's supposed to be at the forefront of this, or, um, but, but it's the church that is to be at the front of this. Uh, and I thought he painted a good picture, too, of what happens when the church kind of abdicates that responsibility.
0: What did you think of his, uh, refrain of our inheritance? I, uh,
1: yeah, I thought again it, um, you know, I had to think about that. I didn't quite catch it, quite grasp it at first. Hmm. Uh, but but I think what he was saying was like, this is what's been handed down to us. This is kind of our this yeah. is who we are. This is it. part of the church's DNA through the generations. Uh, and we must continue with that. Well, how did you read inheritance or hear inheritance when you heard it?
0: Yeah, I think similarly. I think you take all of the factors that you've mentioned, the fact that he's a white pastor, the fact that he's in the South, the fact that he tends to land more conservatively in general. I think there, there was a, a fire and a passion. And I this is part of what, for a lot of us, what we really appreciate about his preaching and I'm, I'll be curious to see if there's any kind of backlash in general. And I—I uh, I, again, admittedly, I've only seen the clip. So I'd love to go back right. and watch the entire sermon and see like those three minutes in its context. But there's a reason those three minutes were edited. And, I, and you mentioned even before we listened to it, you're like, just to be clear, he's a white guy, which, yeah. you know, sometimes I feel like, you know, what is our motive behind even like giving those qualifiers? But there is some added some added heat knowing that um, part of what he's sort of owning even about his legacy and what we've forfeited yeah. and what the church needs to be standing for and needs to be about and how we've forgotten that. And uh, I don't know. I was I was challenged. I was convicted. I was inspired. And, and again, yes. we would love to know what you think. We've shared this on our Facebook page. Did you like it? Did you not like it? Did you disagree with it? Was there pushback? All of that can happen over at the the, uh, the Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, Dr. Curtis Salter from Judson University is going to be on to show with us some of his thoughts from the last couple of weeks. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a bunch of places on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. We're also on Instagram and Twitter, at Common Good Talk. And maybe maybe most significantly we're also podcasted if you subscribe rate and review to the podcast that does help us out a whole ton and as we've been saying in particular for the last couple of weeks Brian and I want to really assume postures of listeners of learners and uh, I think Curtis you might be one of our first three peep guests on the mm-hmm. show ever that of course is Dr. Curtis Salter welcome back to the show sir
3: Thank you, sir. i glad to be here. I am glad to be a part of this conversation for this important dialogue that we're having right now. And yeah, thank you, you. for being and thank you for putting yourself in a place that the church can hear what's going on. Hmm.
0: So well, before we get into some of that stuff, why don't you uh, just briefly introduce yourself to our audience to remind people who you are?
3: Okay, very good. Of course, i I'm a uh, child of God, uh, I love the Lord, and I'm also a uh, Associate Vice President for Diversity and Spiritual Development at Justin University. I'm also a local pastor here and an architect, an architecture professor. <laughs> so I'm glad to hold these roles that I have. It's, it's uh, hmm. instrumental in what I've been doing these last few weeks.
1: Yeah, and I'd love to jump in right there, just not only how have the last few weeks been for you, but what have you been doing these past few weeks?
3: Well, i tell you, because of the COVID-19, we've been having a number of meetings at the university and in my own family in terms of how to respond to this going forward. And uh, in my church, we've unfortunately lost a number of members in COVID-19.
5: Wow. Um, being
3: an African-American and having a mostly racial church is impacted, as you know, everyone knows, the uh, people of color, African-Americans. So I've been processing that. And then with the recent uh, racialized events that's taking place, Mm. um, I tell you it's had an impact upon me. I grew up in the South, place called Sumter, South Carolina. Mm. And the past few weeks, we have been on a vacation. I've traveled to a number of cities. Over each city, I've gone to all the exit ramps have been closed off because they don't have access to the downtown areas, which is any place from Cincinnati to uh, Indianapolis to um, Louisville, to my my own city I grew up in, uh, Fonbury. So I'm going, of course, Atlanta's been impacted, too. This is my other shop, too. So it's been a very busy time for me. me. And this has all been on vacation that I've been doing this for. Wow. So I know
0: at Judson, like you were saying, you wear a number of hats. I'm reading here you have a Ph.D. in environmental design with a minor in cultural anthropology. You also have a background in architecture. You wear one of the hats is sort of overseeing this, uh, really important diversity conversation at Judson University. Can you explain a little bit about how it's been navigating the last, let's say two weeks or so? And I imagine the emails and the questions and you're, you're a man of God as well. So people are kind of asking you to sort of take all of those hats and formulate some kind of response or answer. Uh, what do you, what do you tell people? And people say, Hey, what do you, what are we, what are we supposed to make of all of this?
3: Well, you know, um, so but let me also say, as an African-American male who grew up in the South, mm-hmm. who experienced some of the racialized events uh, that, that's taken place and has taken place before, I look at it a little different. Obviously, it's personal to me, as it is with a number of, of uh, other African-Americans. I see it in a big picture of being trans. Okay, think that's a specific thing that relates to uh, oppression and that relates to um, individuals coming from the standpoint of superiority or inferiority. And I think uh, uh, my white colleagues mm. come from that background and don't even recognize this sometimes. So some of the dialogues that we have, um, I think this is a time that a lot of them need to be put into a position of really listening. Listening to what is going on, what's being shared, people wow. of uh, color. So at Judson University, I think um, our president uh, and a number of the leaders here have been trying to put themselves into the role of of listening, but also recognizing that this is sin, a uh, big thing behind this, is sin.
1: Yeah. And I'm wondering, and this might not be going on just because it's the summer, but I'm wondering how college students, uh, both white students, but uh, particularly African-American students that maybe you're in contact with, are processing all that's going on right now.
3: Well, I think uh, since, um, this is summer, and we've right. actually had some meetings with uh, some of the students that's been on campus. Uh, white students are very, very upset by this. Mm-hmm because they see how this is influencing their friends, right. how this is impacting um, the education that they get. They, I think the, the term that you've heard that we use is their woke. Most of them are aware now, because of the video by George Floyd, of some of the injustices that have been taking place, not just from this long incident, but from many, many incidents that have taken place over the last decade or so. Hmm. So they are upset, uh, rightly so. The African-American students are just waiting to see what's going to happen. They're upset as well, and it's almost as if, look, here we go again. Hmm. In my own lifetime, I've seen this played out over and over and over again. The thing that's different about it right now is that um, more of my colleagues are aware of what some of the things are like, to grow up as an African-American. And I have been looking at this and processing this, as a number of African-Americans have been, uh, to see what happens next. Um, And in some cases, we take this in our own hands and we start protesting, which we should do, uh, but in the right way.
6: Hmm.
0: Dr. C., one of the things that I appreciate about you so much, and you know, we're real life friends and we've broke bread together and we've been a part of different councils and teams together. Not only are you a lifelong learner, but you also encourage other people to be lifelong learners. And I know, you know, we only have nine or 10 Mm -hmm. minutes here together now, but I'm wondering for someone listening, are there resources that you would encourage people to check out? Are there books that you would encourage people to buy or films to watch? Like what are the things? that people that are maybe hearing this discussion for the first time can leave from here, from listening to this interview and actually take a deeper dive into some of the stuff you're talking about.
3: Absolutely. There are a number of books that we can look at as, as Christians. I think one of the same books is um, divided by faith, which is a book written by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. Hmm. Uh, they're both, well, Michael is the provost at uh, North Park university and The God of Our Faith looks at the evangelical religion and the problems of race in America. Mm. Uh, Another book that I'm actually reading now is called White as Sin, and it looks at the new paradigm for racial healing. Mm. Uh, It's actually written by a pastor uh, and an educator as well. Tyler is White as Sin, a new paradigm for racial healing. The other book is Stability. And it's written by Robin, I think, D'Angelo. And hmm. she talks about why I say harp and why people talk about right. race. So, look, those are a few books that I have that will be helpful to as well. Um, but this is just a starting point. I think one of the most important points is to find out your own bias first. Mm-hmm. Your unconscious or your the bias. Hmm. And then that's when you can grow. That's when you can start. Understanding, and, and my, do I have any micro And do I have any, uh, unconscious feelings that I'm operating out of? Know yourself. Mm-hmm. You look at yourself as a, as a mirror. First, reflect on yourself, which is what I'm trying to do. And then, uh, look at, look through a window to see what you're seeing that represents oppression that you can do something about. Mm-hmm. So these are some recommendations I would have, and that helped me as well. That's
0: wonderful. And not surprisingly, absolutely <laughs> brilliant. Dr. Curtis Salter, again, Associate Vice President for Diversity and Spiritual Development at my alma mater, Judson University. Thank you as always for taking the time to join us on the show today. Praise God. Thank you, sir.
3: Always enjoyable to hear from you and be a part of the
0: program. Likewise. So grateful for you, brother. Appreciate it. We're well, coming up next. I'm going to talk about this article out of the Washington Post that says white Americans resist the temptation to disengage that's coming up next here on the common good on am 1160 hope for your life everyone welcome back to the common good my name is ian simpkins along with brian Fromm. you can find us by googling us i'm not going to do all that again because i'm going to have to do it seven more times today but i do want to let you all know we have a very special treat coming up in the second hour our executive producer keith conrad not only did he just get married he also just published a book, and so we're getting – can I call it an exclusive interview, Brian? I think so. I think it is. It leads, I'm not it even sure what that day. means. Yeah, let's just call it the <laughs> yes. exclusive interview with Keith Conrad coming up next here on The Common Good. But uh, I have two articles here. One says an open letter to my fellow white Christians. So that's a very specific target audience. The second, though, is one that I've been interested in. It says white Americans resist the temptation to disengage. And I've seen a number of friends tweeting and posting around this idea because like a lot of things, there's this massive uprising. And again, obviously, this one is way different from a global perspective, from a right. point in history perspective. But we have and there's, I think, a reasonable amount of skepticism, particularly from uh like the black and brown community that's thinking like, yeah, you're into this now, but. Will, would do you have the steam to hold out for another week or month or year or two years? And I found this article to be super interesting. So why don't you get us into it?
1: Yeah, written by Samuel uh, Kimbriel, a political philosopher and the author of Friendship as Sacred Knowing. Uh And it's just right from the beginning here at The Washington Post. Uh, The temptation for white middle class America to disengage from the George Floyd protests is growing. It's a temptation that must be resisted, though many now concede that police reform is needed. These protests are trying to say something deeper and more uncomfortable about America's social contract regarding race. The problem is that the level of commitment needed to address a history marked by slavery, segregation and rampant inequality is far greater than what the white community has ever been willing to give. Above Mm. all, the goal must be healing, he writes. If If healing is to happen, the nation, in particular, its whiter and wealthier communities, must engage with the substance of the frustration being expressed. We must refuse to be distracted by a desire to get back to normal. I'll pause there. I think that this is wise, and this is kind of, we asked, oh, we've had so many great interviews that I forget who we asked yesterday, but kind of the the, the the hard work of what's next, like what's the next months and years look like, because right now uh, emotions are high across the board. People are marching of both colors of all races. Um, but there's going to come a time here where the kind of the protests, the actual marches stop uh, and the Facebook posts move on to something else. And that's when the real work has to happen. And so I think this is a really important opinion piece here. Like, are the people right now, especially the white Americans who are posting, who are marching, which are all good things, what is the level that we're willing to engage this for the coming months, the coming years uh, and that's really what's going to be needed if real substantive reforms are going to take place.
0: Yeah, I don't know that I would say that the work following the protest is the real work. I think this right now is the real work, too. I just the think hard it's hard work. It's maybe, a different, yeah. I think this is hard work, too, though. I think it's different. Yeah. I think there's diff- different kinds of work for sure. I think for me, the paragraph that kind of seals it here says the protests are drawing attention to a point that white middle class American culture has badly, perhaps willfully misunderstood. Countries are not machines. They can't be, quote, fixed. They are more like bodies and can only be healed. Our body politic has been deeply and pervasively wounded at the point of race. The signs of infection are clear. Inequality, mass incarceration, police brutality. So that idea that – and I've heard people say, no, we need to fix this, right? And Mm. I think that comparison is actually really on point, that it's countries and, and for that matter, people and communities – aren't machines that could just sort of be tweaked like oh here's the problem you had your your pistons weren't firing or this mm. you know screw was loose like although some people might say that about others it's not <laughs> something that you just simply fix but something that needs to heal and as most of us know like healing can't be microwaved like it takes time and it takes understanding and it takes intention and yeah. that, that's i, I think in a lot of ways the point of the article like hey don't don't bail on this now, like once the, you know, the hipness of the moment wears off, uh, especially for white Americans. And I think, I don't know, do you, do you find this challenging? Do you find this, do you find yourself tempted to like disengage as a pastor where you're like, okay, you know, we saw the last two weeks, a bunch of churches host quote, like a conversation with a friend of color, which I think was really good, but that's not enough either, obviously to dedicate one Sunday, to have a conversation and then business as usual. So, so what are the ways that, you know, maybe for you personally, or as a pastor or a leader, how do you keep from disengaging? Yeah, I honestly, it's a
1: really hard question that I've been thinking about the last couple of days. Cause you know uh, the protests, I was just talking to one of my kids like, Oh yeah, there's going to come a day soon where, you know, things will kind of get back to quote unquote normal. There won't be protests. There won't be boards on the, you know, there won't be boards on the shops in downtown and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, I think one of the answers is to continue to engage the conversation with your um, uh, with your friends of color and just asking, you know, how are things, but but also how we vote. You know what I mean? Like, at the end, the reforms are going to be brought about by pressure being placed upon government officials who can make laws. And so, you know, the question is, what's going to drive our votes? Uh, what are we going to continue to allow ourselves to become uncomfortable with? I think there's all sorts of questions here. I don't have a great answer, though, as to how do you keep going? I think that's going to be, quite frankly, a real struggle because our culture doesn't do that well when it doesn't directly affect me, my day to day. It becomes easy to move on to the next thing. But that can't happen here. What, how would you answer that question about kind of those next
0: steps? Well, a lot you? of what you were saying just there, I think, actually is one of the helpful definitions of privilege that assuming something isn't a problem if it's not a problem for me. So right. it is a position of privilege to say, okay, I'm going to move on you know, to something else now or something else takes our attention. And obviously, like we're also still dealing with a global pandemic. Those are legitimate right. things to uh, warrant some of our attention. I think you're right, though. I think when we talk about – I mean, I feel like I've heard the word systemic a lot lately. We have to deal with things at a systems level, and that that can't just be – Tweets and posts. And I'm as guilty of that as anybody, you know, but it also needs to start like in my own heart. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to do a much better job of reading and listening to voices of color, men and women, reading from theologians of color, listening to podcasts. Like there's just something that I know, like in my own heart, it's exposing some biases that I honestly didn't even know were there. And there have been ways that I've been complicit in a system that I did not realize. And so that's part of it. I think we have to, you know, a lot of us need to deal with our own house as well, yeah. our own hearts, our own families, but to also make commitments that affect systems going forward, and not just flash in the pan. All right, well, I'll, I'll post this thing or make this statement, and then I, you know, I got to move on. I think if healing is the goal, if that's the analogy, and I think it's a good one, there's a lot of. If you scrape up your leg or bash up your leg, there's a bunch of things you need, you need to immobilize the leg for a little bit. Need to dress it accordingly. You probably need to redress it a couple of times. You need to ease back into walking. Like there's just a lot of steps to it that need to live on. I think past right now and speaking up right now is really, really important and really, really critical, but also not the only step. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Totally. And
1: he ends the article a little bit with saying American racial divides predates every living person. Now, yet we are living now. It's a shared body. These are all, all are all our relationships, our community. And the work is to achieve actual health. Uh, and I think that idea of the body, I think, is an important one. How do you bring about health? How do you bring about um a change. How, how does this change over time? And so, I think it's a it's a really not just a valid but an important point that goes: uh, How do we, as a culture, uh, collectively uh, keep this front of mind, even if there's not active protest going on or other things? How do we continue moving this conversation forward uh, across the spectrum and not just? Uh, looking to the African Americans to be the only ones carrying this burden going yeah. forward.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's a good point. Well, coming up next, an article that Brian found with a fascinating headline that reads "Regular Church Attendance Lowers Chances of Quote Deaths from Despair." A new Harvard study finds. That's coming up next here on the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you like. Coming up this hour, is it actually better mentally for us to go back to church? And then later, our executive producer, Keith Conrad, is going to talk about his new book. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. How did you used to say get your podcast? We, we talked about it like you were selling snacks at a ball game. Remember how that that's that's exactly how I do. I'd be uh, get your podcast. I would say uh, uh basically download wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, that's I'm, I missed that mostly because I just haven't seen like a full baseball stadium in a long time. Oh makes, no, joke. makes me sad. Didn't mean to make it sad. Sorry. Let me get back to the oh, particulars. I'm out. I'm out. I'm out yeah, for I the understand. rest of the segment. I completely understand. <laughs> I'll carry the rest of the hour. That's okay. <laughs> All right, so you can go to Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post articles. You can send us messages if you have suggestions for future shows. You can review that page. That helps a whole ton. You can also get the podcast wherever it is that you find a wonderful podcast. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing there also helps us out a whole lot. Plus, if you're feeling extra generous, just hit that share button. Maybe send it to a friend if there's an episode and an interview that stood out to you. All of that really does help us out a whole lot. And this is an article from the Christian Post that Brian James Fromm himself found. And it says, regular church attendance lowers chances of quote deaths from despair, a new Harvard study finds. What is going on here? Yeah, I don't I just found it
1: interesting, and it's from a reputable source like Harvard. Let me just read it for you. A study of the well-being of healthcare workers in the United States found that those who regularly attend worship services are at a lower risk of deaths related to alcohol, drugs, or suicide, collectively known as deaths from despair. Hmm. Uh, Researchers for the public health school at Harvard had a study published last week titled religious service, attendance and deaths related to drugs, alcohol, and suicide. The research drew this. Listen, how many people 66,492 female registered nurses, and mm. 43,141 male healthcare professionals, oh. uh, according to the researchers, women who attended religious services at least once per week had a 68% lower hazard of death from despair compared wow. to peers who did not. Wow. While men who attended worship at least once a week had a 33% lower hazard compared to men who never attended. Uh, They stated this study suggests that religious service attendance was associated with lower risk of death from despair among both men and women, accounting for a wide range of potential uh, confounders. Uh, Findings of this study are congruent with previous evidence suggesting that religious service attendance was was inversely associated with all cause, mortality and various factors associated with despair. Positively associated with psychosocial well being outcomes, such as greater purpose in life, and often more strongly associated with subsequent health compared with other aspects of social integration. Now, in noting its limitations, the researchers cautioned that their study examined a section of the country with higher than average educational background and that other religious practices were not considered. And they ended by saying the convergence of shared beliefs and enhanced social connection may be associated with the health benefits. So I'll stop there. It's a Harvard study with a lot of people. I guess what struck me the first time I read this, Ian, was uh, the percentages, like 68% difference and 33%. That's a really big difference that uh, probably uh, warrants some trying to unpack those numbers and figure out why.
0: Why do you think so much higher in women than men? Hmm. My first guess to that
1: was that women may have a higher uh, value on community than men do. Is that fair? Maybe. Uh, and that uh, religious institutions, religious services tend to provide. That's one aspect that they provide. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure I, that I know the difference between men and women there. Why would you even guess that both numbers, while different, are high? Are you surprised that they're that hot, that much different?
0: Uh, I don't think I'm actually that. I'm not surprised that they're high there. It is a little surprising that the disparity between the two is so significant, but I'm not not really sure why I do. I am super grateful for how this article ends, says that more religious adults in particular tend to exhibit healthier sleep outcomes than their less religious counterparts. (laughs) So that's good news. You Christians, you should be sleeping better. And I'm feeling convicted by that. I'm definitely not. Maybe that's more of a (laughs) life state situation than it is a faith stage situation i'm wondering like in your mind does this account for digital gatherings or is this specifically for the physical like fleshed gathering of people in person so i would guess that it is still going to be higher for people regularly
1: engaged in digital gatherings but not as high i think it loses an aspect i do think there's something to be said about uh encouragement and purpose, these things that, that come, we be, I believe, through a faith in Christ that are constantly being worshiped and remembered and talked about. So that can happen digitally, right? Like, I, I think that can happen. But I do think part of this aspect is uh, the shared community uh, that, that happens when people are regularly joining together with their, with their uh, church community. That gets lost, uh, in the digital experience. I think that's why so many people are itching to get back to church. Um, I don't think a lot of people are itching to get back so that they can see their pastor live versus on a, on a screen. But I think more so, uh, they miss their, their community. They miss their family and they miss their church. And so, uh, I think it's probably still better, uh, but probably not as high. It probably loses some of their effects. Uh, what would you say? How would you say to that?
0: Well, I have I have more questions. So if you think that the uh, the community aspect is the highest driver, you know, when we're able to gather in groups of 10 or 25 or even 50, let's let's assume someone that's really, really uh, most interested in like their community, like being in person with the people at their church, they consider to kind of be their people. Let's say they have a small group and that's, you know, 10 to 12 people yep. and then they have the team they serve on and that's maybe you know, what, another 10 people depending on the size of the team. And then like the general acquaintances that you tend to see most frequently, you know, when you would attend a building once we can gather 30, 40, 50 people in a room, do you think that there'll be even less desire to ever return back to like the full fledged everyone together in the room kind of a gathering?
1: Oh that's an interesting question. I don't think so. It might not be a push for it. See it, there's even just the difference between you know my church that might have 150 people in the room and your church that may have a couple thousand but um there's still that energy that I think people enjoy and they enjoy you know being with a large group of people that they're kind of in this together with. Now I would say I'd go back and say that I'm not sure that the community aspect is always the number 1 aspect. Uh, I, I think it is uh, the number one aspect very well might be the good news of of the gospel and, and the providing purpose in life and kind of some priorities. My point was you can still get that online. You could still get that message, but it's without the community aspect of it. Um, I don't know. I don't think that people are going to I think people are itching to get back to what they knew of their church before. It may never come back, but I think. In terms of the community, I think people are itching to get back to their full community, seeing people of different ages and different stages of life, who even they might have just they might have just known from
0: waving to each other and saying hello in the morning. You keep saying itching though. If you're itching, you should probably stay home in general. Like that's (laughs) that's a valid point. Said it like five times, and I'm like, I don't. That's that's a that's a warning. Uh, That might be a symptom. (laughs) Yeah, no, no kidding. It is interesting though because the church, as we've talked about a number of times now over the last three months. Is not merely the dissemination of information. So Agreed. you're talking about, yeah, the gospel can still be proclaimed, but I also think there are other factors at play that are that transcend simply like social desire. I think that's part of it, but I also think that when you're hearing the gospel proclaimed together in a room or that you're singing yeah. together and singing is a whole other discussion. That's a whole other yeah. aspect that is problematic right now. But I, not only do I think those things are like, enjoyable and people look forward to them. I think it does something to our physiology and our brains and our souls. There's something about listening to someone preach on your phone or even on a TV with surround sound versus (laughs) actually being in the physical space that goes, I think, beyond simply preference. I think it is more integrated than that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of what people are lamenting right now is this general sense, even if they don't have language for it, they're like, Oh, man, I'm so grateful for technology and that we can still do all these things, but I'm still missing blank. I'm still longing for blank. And I think you're right. I think it's going to be a long, long time before we actually see any kind of gatherings like what we were used to six months ago. And I think that's, that's tough. Yeah,
1: For me, the thing I miss the most that could still be a ways off is the way we do communion at our church is just everyone lined up and walking to the front and that watching person after person, after person, I long, I think of all of this, I can't wait to take communion with the entire church <laughs> church community. And, uh, yeah, I think you're a hundred percent right. I do think, uh, While technology is has been great due to our circumstances, I do think it's very limiting. And I I, I, I haven't met anyone who really who's like they might they might be slower to being wanting to go back. But I haven't met anyone who's just like, no, I'm done with going back. Like, I don't I don't think that's true.
0: You could just have people film themselves receiving communion, Brian, and send it to you and you could stitch it together. make me feel good. And just play it. Yeah, that's the creepiest suggestion I've ever given you. Um, (laughs) Coming up next, a guy named David French, who we've referenced a number of times on this show. He wrote an article at his website, which again is the best website name ever, The French Press. And the headline reads, American Racism, We've Got So Very Far To Go. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope For Your Life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the World Wide Web, the wild, worldwide... No, that's not funny. What do we used to call it? We should go back, we should play the very first show we did and how we stumbled through trying to tell people that we were online. Do you remember that? Yes, I remember
1: being terrified and we both just kind of mumbled our way through the whole thing. (laughs) Just trying to get there.
0: I mumbled my very first words ever on the show. I totally porky-pigged it. It was so embarrassing and i hope i hope that no one has enough free time to actually go back and listen to that because well
1: because if i were to make fun of you for that there you could quickly remind me that i uh, said the wrong name for the show when we went to our first commercial break so
0: that is also true i like how we both outed ourselves before that was the, good before the other person could do it like well <laughs> it was and, coming and if you did that then you could do this but i wouldn't do that anyway did i give the particulars i did not, not facebook the common good radio show 1160hope.com slash the common good, wherever it is you get your podcasts. And uh, I know it seems tedious, and especially if you're on a little tiny smartphone, you got big hands or something, but reviewing it, subscribing to it, just leaving a little rating, all of that does really help us out a whole lot, and we appreciate those of you who have already. I don't know that we've talked David French in a while, but he he – I don't know, man. There's something about the way that he writes – and the timing of his writing, he's just a good writer in general, even mm. if you disagree with him. But he wrote at the French press, American racism, we've got so very far to go and the journey must continue step by step. So we were talking a little bit earlier in the show about this one particular article about the temptation, especially for white Americans to kind of disengage once this like isn't a social media phenomenon and once sort of like, I don't know, for some people, it's just going to feel like the adrenaline wore off and they're going to move on yeah. to something else. I like the way that he sort of paints this picture of the long game. It's almost like French's version of a long obedience in the same direction, right? Like we can't this can't stop right here. And I think he uh, he paints an interesting picture. So why don't you get us into it?
1: Yeah. And I would say one of the greatest names of a blog is the French press. How good is that? (laughs) Real good. He says, today, let's dive into one of the toughest questions of our religious, cultural, and political lives. While we write and print millions of words about race in America, why is it still so hard to have a truly respectful, decent, and humble dialogue about perhaps the most complicated and contentious issue in American life? It's a huge topic, but let's start with what I believe he says, uh, what French says, is a true principle of human nature, a maxim called Miles Law, where you stand depends on. On where you sit Hmm. Uh, while originating as an explanation for behavior of people in bureaucracies miles law has a much broader application it speaks to the overwhelming influence of our own social religious and cultural experiences over our viewpoint our different political cultures not only live different lives uh, they speak different languages they apply different definitions to the same words and phrases and those definitions are not self-evident take systemic racism for example uh, friend says, I dare say that only a vanishingly small number of Americans know that this is a term with an academic meaning that's not entirely obvious from the words themselves. Here's one definition of structural or systemic racism. That definition is a system in which public policies, institutional practices. Cultural representations and other norms work in various, often reinforcing ways to perpetuate racial group inequity. Mm. It identifies dimensions of our history and culture that have allowed privileges associated with whiteness and disadvantages associated with color to endure and adapt over time. Structural racism is not something that a few people or institutions choose to practice. Instead, it has been a feature of the social, economic and political systems in which we all exists yet he says millions of americans read the accusation that America is beset with quote systemic racism and hear a simpler and more direct meaning of the term you're saying our systems and by implication the people in them are racist and but that's completely contrary to their experience let me pause there what are you taking from what he's saying here especially this miles law and how this uh this influences even the ways we're able to talk about race
0: well it's it's not really new information necessarily to anyone who has paid attention to social media that in a lot of ways we use the same word with a different dictionary as my mom used to say and his example there of systemic racism is a fascinating one because i've heard a number of people make the exact assumption that he outlines that people are thinking okay well you're saying that our systems and by implication the people in them are racist but that's not my experience and they think how can it be that a system is racist when I just left a corporate diversity training seminar and I yep. work at an equal opportunity affirmative action employer or my son's college professors are constantly telling him to check his privilege, right? So there's there's language that – and this is why I think words matter so much, but they don't, they don't do everything because if I'm saying one thing – like even think about how much pushback you've probably gotten or you, you and I both have with the term white privilege. Have you experienced any of that in your – Life or ministry—that someone is is really opposed to that that phrase. Yeah,
1: uh, definitely. Whether it be online or in person, that that is one of those that that uh, gets people's emotions going for sure.
0: And it's kind of one of those. I mean, it's not always the same, but oftentimes it's like, no, I've worked really hard for where I where I am. And like, yeah, that's not what white privilege means. Actually, it doesn't mean that you haven't worked hard, that you haven't had to overcome obstacles. There's a, there's a lot of things it doesn't mean, and so it it sort of shows itself in the responses which is why i think french is sort of calling us to this long game because he's like yeah it's not it's not just about this particular moment there's a lot of things that we have to even unlearn before we can relearn and you know systems by their very nature are hard to unravel because they're built not to right like yeah system with any level of intentionality is not going to go away passively it's going to require like a lot of okay oh that's Oh, that's in there. Like I was mentioning yesterday or the day before, I'm listening to this four-part series on uh, seen on radio about race, about whiteness in America. And there's so much in there that I, I just honestly didn't know. And I, I don't know that I have like a finger to point at anyone for not telling me earlier, but there certainly is a, an experience of like, oh, wow, that's a part of the system. And my black and brown brothers and sisters probably have known that for a while. And I didn't. And I wasn't listening or I wasn't paying attention. You know what I mean? It's just it's more complicated than I think a lot of people realize.
1: And this Miles Law, which I've never really heard of. I know the concept of what you think is determined by where you sit just highlights again uh, the problem with a lot of our of what we consume social media wise and otherwise is that not only is the problem where we sit, but we tend to only listen to voices or read things of people. Uh, who tend to sit in the same spot right like we're who uh, who look like us think like us whatever else I think one of the things that I've been challenged in this season is just uh, is to listen but who am I listening to what am I reading what am I right. what am I willing to listen to and watch and uh, what are the other viewpoints I think that becomes really important otherwise uh, you know we get into as we like to say our own echo chambers and and then you go look there's people all around me who agree I can't be wrong <laughs> like right, I've got it. Right. Uh, and so this whole where you sit determines what you think. It's also who you sit with all the time. And by sit with, I mean, who are you reading? Who are you listening to? Uh, who are you allow- who are you allowing yourself to kind of fall under and, and be taught by? I think these are really important questions uh, that we've all got to be asking ourselves going forward here.
0: So I like what he offers here. He says, so now I sit in a different place, but where do I stand? I believe the following things to be true. One. Slavery was legal and defended morally and ultimately militarily from 1619 to 1865. Two, after slavery, racial discrimination was lawful and defended morally and often violently from 1865 to 1964. Three, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 did not end illegal discrimination or racism, it mainly gave black Americans the legal tools to fight back against legal injustices. Four, it is unreasonable to believe that social structures and cultural attitudes that were constructed over a period of 345 years will disappear in 56. Five. Mm-hmm. Moreover, the consequences of 345 years of legal and cultural discrimination are going to be dire, deep-seated, complex, and extraordinarily difficult to comprehensively. I don't know what that last word is. Amoliorate. Um, I've used that amolior. word before, actually. He's, ameliorate. Caught, he's yeah. caught me up on that word before. I got to look that up. <laughs> but I want to introduce it into my language. But he goes on to say it's hard even to begin to describe all the ramifications of 345 years of legalized oppression and 56 years of contentious change. But we can say two things at once. Yes, we have made great strides and we should acknowledge the fact and remember the men and women who made it possible. But the central and salient consideration of American racial politics shouldn't center around pride in how far we've come, but in humble realization of how much farther we have to go. I know that we're mm. mostly out of time, Brian, but what do you think of that?
1: I, it's challenging. All these articles we read, I'm always like really thankful for reading them and a little bit like oh, I wish I hadn't read that because it challenges me. <laughs> you know, and just yeah. uh, it causes us to ask questions. And so it's a really long article. I'd encourage you to read it at our Facebook page and be challenged. We'd love to hear your feedback about it.
0: Well, coming up next, we have a very special guest. Our executive producer, Keith Conrad, is the author of the new sci-fi thriller, Righteous Might, and he's going to join us for an entire segment to talk about it. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with and alongside Brian Fromm, who is also digital, so we're not necessarily alongside. I don't know how words work. Anyway... You can find us a bunch of places on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's not only where we post articles. You can also send us a message if you have ideas for future shows. We're also on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk, 1160hope.com slash the common good. Plus, we're podcasted. Some of you are listening to the podcast right now. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing, all of that does magically help us out a whole lot. And we are so grateful for those of you who have. And this is his... His debut interview, our executive producer, Keith Conrad, author of the new sci-fi thriller, Righteous Might, is joining us right here on The Common Good for his exclusive interview. Keith, welcome to the show, good sir.
4: Well, thank you, Ian, but I should point out that I've been on once before, but it wasn't very uh, noteworthy, so I'm not sorry. <laughs> no, I meant for this book,
0: but I should qualify that. That's true. The last interview was about the Titanic, I believe. yes. It, it was, yes. Okay, so just so that our audience, and we talk about you endlessly, so most people will already know who you are, but why don't you give us just a brief bio about who you are and what you're about?
4: Uh, well, I was born in uh, in Streamwood. Right on. Uh, Go on. Was, uh, 38 years ago, and uh, my dad is a rocket scientist, uh, was involved in uh, in making GPS, so you're welcome for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, because of that, moved to uh, Huntsville, Alabama, which which is very famous for uh, for space stuff. Mm-hmm. And I uh, went to college there. Got into radio when I was in college, and uh, the rest is history. Oh man! Yes, yeah.
1: and newly married as well. Congratulations for that! And
4: yeah, I forgot to mention that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You'll learn the longer you're married, right? Hey, uh, so you just wrote a sci-fi thriller, a book called "Righteous Might." Uh, so I'd love to hear what it's about, but but more than that, like all of us are always like, I'd like to write a book, uh, but you actually did. So what was, why did you want to write a book and kind of, what was that process like? How long did it take? What was it all like for you? That's like
0: five questions, Brian, but it's all the same. It's all together.
4: (laughs) So just, just tell us everything.
1: Yes. (laughs) I want to leave Ian with nothing else to ask. (laughs)
0: Mission
4: accomplished. Uh, so the story of the book is, is kind of interesting because there was a movie in 1980 uh, called The Final Countdown, not to be confused with the Europe song
3: mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> <laughs> the movie, The Final Countdown. And it starred, uh, starred Martin Sheen and uh, Kirk Douglas. Oh, yeah. And it involved the USS Nimitz uh, actually like sailing into a weird storm. And coming out on the other end and finding out they were in 1941, right before the Mm -hmm. attack on Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. And uh, the movie ends with the storm reappearing and sending them back home, having done actually nothing. Like They they just sort of saw the sights and then went back home. Hmm. And there were a couple things. I I rewatched it when I was a little bit older. And a couple things really bothered me about it. First of all was the, the ending in that. They don't actually make any sort of impact. You know, they 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 go on this adventure back in time, but they don't actually have any impact, right? Uh, because they come back home right away. And I think because of like the like, I think of practical things, and <laughs> filming on an aircraft carrier is tough, and so there's like a lot of limitations to the story that they end up telling, and it really only follows like four people, and they just sort of like immediately accept the fact that they're in 1941. And it doesn't spend any time at all talking about, like, the impact of the crew, you know, when they're stuck in 1941 or they think they're going to be stuck in 1941. Right. They, uh, like they they don't react to it. Like, the fact that they're not going to see their friends or family or anybody ever again. Like, there's, there's really no reaction to that. And so uh, uh, I... Coincidentally, about the same time I saw the PBS series Carrier, which I don't know if you guys saw that, but Mm -mm. it was a documentary that actually followed the USS Nimitz, that same ship, uh, through a a six month long deployment. And that's actually what what made it pop into my head because I was like, oh, this is the same ship from that movie. So these (laughs) are literally the people that would be dealing with that. Wow. And so I, I had the idea of telling the story. Of this carrier going back in time to the day before Pearl Harbor, but focusing completely uh, on on the crew and how they react to it, and also ultimately they end up fighting the Japanese and having like basically completely screwing up uh, World <laughs> War Two for the Japanese. <laughs> so, so basically, what you're saying is
0: you saw a movie as a kid that you didn't like, so you wrote a book about it.
4: So, so basically, I wrote I wrote. I wrote a better version of it. Basically. <laughs> but, I mean, no offense to the people who made the movie. Like, <laughs> None taken, I'm sure. I literally changed every single detail in the story other than the fact that there's a aircraft carrier in World War II. The way they go back is different. Uh, all the characters are different. Everything is different except for that thing.
0: Okay. Well, here's the thing that I'm, I'm curious because I hear people, like Brian was saying all the time, they're like, oh, I would love to write one day. And you had plenty going on. Like you have a full-time job. You were planning a wedding, which if we have time, I'd love to talk about because that was a social distance digital Facebook live wedding that you weren't planning to do. What advice would you give to someone listening that's like, I've never actually put pen to paper. I have no idea what the actual bandwidth of writing a book is like. You actually just accomplished it. What encouragement or, or even caution maybe would you give to someone who really wants to write, but just really hasn't ever made the time?
4: It actually was a really long process for me because mm. I think I started it uh, back in like 2012 or so. No, no I'm kidding. Mm. Uh, so 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 quite some time ago, and it was basically a a process where I would write on it for a couple months, uh, get you know make some progress, and then just stop for you know six months or even a year. Right. And uh, uh, you know, a couple things uh, really helped me uh, finish it. First of all, was my brother constantly nagging me because he wanted to read it. <laughs> nice. uh, third was then having uh, my my future wife I- in my life because I wanted to, you know, actually like impress her and show that right. I finished right. <laughs> and uh, the third was actually uh, a a writer named uh, Robert Cargill who wrote the movie Doctor Strange has a, a a podcast that's all about the writing process, and he literally said listen, the first thing you write is going to be terrible, but you won't believe how it will feel when you actually finish it. And Mm. actually being able to finish it will allow you to do a lot more. So that sort of gave me like permission to say, okay, this may be good. It may be bad, Mm. but I'm going to finish it and see. Yeah. Mm. I like that.
1: So before Ian asks you about your wedding, sell some books, man, where can people find it? Remind them of the title again. And hopefully our people go out and buy it today.
4: Uh, The title is Righteous Might, so like the uh, FDR speech. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, it's available at Eckhart's Press. But if you go to uh, bit.ly slash righteous might, I actually, it forwards you to the uh, the website. So just bit.ly slash righteous might. You can also just Google it. His name is Keith Conrad, righteous
0: might, Eckhart Press. Highly, highly encourage you to check it out. We don't have a lot of time, Keith, but we've mentioned it like three or four times now. So I just got to ask, what what was your wedding like doing that via Facebook Live?
4: Well, originally, we were going to have a fairly small wedding to begin with. It was only going to be about uh, about 50 people or so. And uh, even that, it turned out, was too much for the state of Illinois because of the uh, the coronavirus lockdown. Right. And, uh, you know, it was interesting because. I was sort of dreading the, having the conversation with Misty, the, the bride to be, because mm-hmm. my thought was, let's just go ahead and do it.
0: Right. Right.
4: And uh, when, I, when I talked to her, she was like, yeah, let's, let's just go ahead and do it. <laughs> so that sort of, uh, that sort of settled that. And um, it, it was, it, it was actually, you know, it, it ended up being a lot more memorable than I would have expected. Hmm. Cause you know, Literally a thousand people have watched the video at this point. Wow! Uh, so that's obviously way more people than would have uh, would have been at a at a wedding. So I, I think it's a lot more uh, a lot more memorable and a lot more um, a lot more noteworthy because you know we we can say that uh, our wedding happened in the middle of everything that was going on. That's and, right. Uh,
0: well, and there's also some other notable WYLL staff there that were taking part, both as the officiant and the photographer. You had a you had a downright Am Eleven Sixty party for your wedding, and as someone who viewed it, it, did, it from it home, it looked great.
3: And was
4: the guy doing the streaming, so it really was a a WYLL affair. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is amazing. Well, many of you will know the name, but maybe not the voice. That has been Keith Conrad, our executive producer and author of the brand new sci fi thriller. Righteous Might. Go get it right now at Eckhart Press. Highly encourage you to check it out. Keith, thank you so much, not only for doing the interview, but for just being a great guy. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Just one last time for good measure, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash Good, or wherever it is in the podcast. We've been ending the show a little different than we normally do. It just feels like the times are a bit different than they have been in quite some time, and uh, our friends over at The Practice, which is sort of this liturgical expression that is a part of Willow Creek... They've been putting out some really, really remarkable recordings, and they have been for a long, long time. And uh, I've been kind of partaking in their morning, midday, and evening prayers, and they've been recording these sort of guided prayers that i found to be really, really helpful. And the ones that they have for this week are all about like prayers of lament. And I don't know if anyone listening is familiar with these kinds of things, but I, I would encourage you, if you're able, wherever you're at, to put down whatever else you're holding to actually like, get into a place where you're comfortable to maybe stop the multitasking. And for like the next five minutes or so, let the practice walk you through what I think is a really beautiful, really timely prayer moment.
6: This evening, we pause once again to recognize and rest in the loving presence of God. Take a deep breath. Matthew 28, Jesus promised, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Take another deep breath. These moments of silence are yours to rest in the presence of the Lord. is a practice of crying out to the Lord in our pain. Though many of us are unfamiliar with this practice, it has been a common one throughout the history of the church. In fact, a third of the Psalms are categorized as Psalms of Lament. You may be feeling the pain of the season today, and a lament feels very appropriate. If that is the case, please join me in a prayer of lament tonight. It is possible today is not a day of sorrow for you if lament is not a natural response to this day would you seek to pray this prayer of lament in solidarity with those who are in pain perhaps you will think about a specific person who is struggling in this season or perhaps you'll consider a people group who are in pain and lament alongside them you to join me in praying this lament from Psalm 5. O Lord, hear me as I pray, pay attention to my groaning, listen to my cry for help, my King and my God, for I pray to no one but you. Listen to my voice in the morning, Lord, each morning I bring my request to you and wait expectantly. O God, you take no pleasure in wickedness. You cannot tolerate the sins of the wicked. Therefore, the proud may not stand in your presence, for you hate all who do evil. You will destroy those who tell lies. The Lord detests murderers and deceivers. Because of your unfailing love, I can enter your house. I will worship at your temple with deepest awe. Lead me in the right path, O Lord, or my enemies will conquer me. Make your way plain for me to follow. My enemies cannot speak a truthful word. Their deepest desire is to destroy others. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave their tongues are filled with flattery O god declare them guilty let them be caught in their own traps drive them away because of their many sins for they have rebelled against you but let all who take refuge in you rejoice let them sing joyful praises forever spread your protection over them that all who love your name may be filled with joy For you bless the godly, O Lord. You surround them with your shield of love. Amen.